Hey guys, I'm Jay, one of the co-founders and the CEO at Imagine, and I'm here with one of our Gen Z team, Nick. Welcome to our podcast, Imagine This, the podcast for all things Gen Z. Want to know more about Gen Z? Then join us for our under 20-minute monthly podcast, where we'll discuss what matters to Gen Z, how they think, and the incredible impact they're having on society. In this, our third episode, we will talk with one of our Gen Z community members, Savina Serrana, on her brutally honest views around ethnic minority groups not taking the COVID vaccine and the rise of NFTs with Gen Z. So Vina, before we get started, I would love to hear about yourself. How old are you? Where are you from? Sure. Uh, hi, great to be here. Um, so I'm from London. I'm 25 and I do marketing for a children's charity. But on the side of that, I also run an art project that's all about empowering people to explore their digital identity um, we run exhibitions, kind of produce online videos and everything in between to try and open up the conversation about what it means to exist online. I love that. And this that's one of the main reasons why we brought you on today, because um, aside from you being a phenomenal human being, I love what you are building with um, Identity 2.0. Um, and I, th- I thought you'd be a great person to, to, to have in this conversation. So I'm going to move us on to our first topic. Um, Data from the Office of National Statistics says that 85% of UK adults are planning on accepting the COVID vaccine, but the remaining 15% are not keen to take the vaccine actually skew heavily towards minority ethnic groups. And this is obviously an important one for all three of us coming from um, from those groups. Coming to you first, Nick, um, what do you think of these statistics and, and what is your experience within your personal community around this? Um, yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting. I think it'd be actually interesting to know kind of the sample size for these statistics. But um, I'd say I'm not actually surprised by this data. I think it kind of it shows a clear problem with how the pandemic has been handled, in particular with misinformation in the media and un- underrepresentation uh, for ethnic minority groups. I think it kind of these statistics highlight a clear kind of vaccine hesitancy in ethnic minority groups. And I think it's important to acknowledge why this has happened. Um, So when speaking to kind of friends and family, uh, especially one friend, he said that his family, they'd be taking the vaccine. Um, However, he did tell me that obviously originally there was a, well, originally, even now, there's a kind of lack of trust in the government, um, which was always going to kind of lend itself into there being a hesitancy. Um, He even told me though, that even if his family, um, who are uh, from an ethnic minority group, he was saying that family friends had actually told them that, um, you know, to be careful because you could potentially grow an extra limb if you took the vaccine. So that's an interesting one. And um, But he did tell me that he thinks it could have been because, you know, they're, they're immigrants who have been brought up uh, with a different perspective and may not have the kind of background knowledge on these vaccines. Um, and he also actually mentioned uh, the interesting thing that uh, people from ethnic minority groups could actually... Um, that he basically spoke about the fact that this issue of money and that um, why has this money, rather than being put in vaccines, et cetera, why is it not being used to help communities or uh, people of colour? So I think it's quite an interesting topic and it's 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 definitely deep-rooted. Um, my partner's from an ethnic minority background and she was originally apprehensive as well um, because of a lot of information regarding kind of how she was more likely to suffer from longer-term impacts. Um, but I think as time has gone on and the kind of rollout of vaccinations has kept increasing um, and it's seemingly a bit more safe, 
you know, supposedly now, I think she's much more willing to kind of to, to take it now. So, yeah. That, that's a really interesting answer. I, I, I find it so um, insightful that, that your friend said that um, family members were saying that they could grow an extra limb. Like that's completely that, and that's that's one definitely now I haven't heard. But my my mum is the same. My mum is 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 definitely not going to be taking the vaccine, and um, a lot of my friends are extremely surprised by that. And she's from um she's from Jamaica, and for her and a lot of my family members, they're really not keen for it. But coming to you, Savina, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think um, it's a really interesting topic. I think the to begin with, um, I think even just saying that, like. Uh, kind of BAME communities are less likely to take the vaccine. I think within that, there's so many nuances, like there's going to be different reactions from black communities, from Asian communities, from other minority ethnic communities. And so I think even breaking down that data and seeing, okay, is there a stronger kind of like prevalence for this reluctance from one group over the other? It was kind of the same when they reported on who was suffering the most from COVID. They said like it was, it was BAME groups. But then within that, you're seeing Pakistani men were like so more affected than the kind of other groups. And so I'm kind of curious about this data as well and like how it's broken down by different ethnic groups. And then in terms of like personal experience, I think it like hesitancy. Yeah, I'm seeing it across the board. I know people who have had the first vaccine and are hesitant to get the second dose because of how it's kind of affected their bodies and how they've been, how their family members have talked about them after they've had their first vaccine and that kind of, oh, I can't believe you've done that. Um, and, and, and so I'm hearing that from people as well. But then on the flip side of things, I also think the hesitancies that they're feeling towards vac- vaccinations stem from just like a long history of kind of hesitancy to involve uh to kind of trust health institutions i don't think this is like i think yeah it's been amplified by how covid has been treated but i do think there's like a long standing history of for example black women and how their pain is often ignored or like subsided when they're pregnant and that's why they've got like a higher mortality rate that isn't because black women are more likely to die when they're given birth, that's because of like institutional problems that are happening and how health institutions deal with race. So I'm not surprised when it comes to this hesitancy because I think it's kind of a long-standing hesitancy that our communities have had with medical professionals. Yeah, and, and and I couldn't agree with both of you more. I definitely really want to look into the data a lot more because, Savina, that point you made around the uh, Pakistani men being so much more um, higher on the, on, on the scale with regards to the ones that, are, that have been getting COVID. And I definitely think the entire, there's always conversation around BAME. That's why I didn't use it when I put it in our notes because I just, I hate the word, the grouping of us all together. Like, hey, if you're non-white, you're just part of this big mesh of human beings and you all go into one data set. I've never really ge- agreed with that. And, and I find it really interesting, your point around black women's pain being ignored and, and I've seen this firsthand with both my sister who had a horrendous um, experience at hospital when she was giving birth to my niece and also my mum when she was giving birth to me she had a, a terrible experience when the nurses were saying that she, she t- technically wasn't in pain they were, didn't agree with her pain they said you'll be fine don't worry um, and she ended up going through a horrendous labour with me luckily she still loves me so it's okay but um, but yeah so I definitely agree around the, around the idea of black women's pain being ignored and I would really love to look into the data more as well but sticking with you Savina before we moved on to our next topic how do you think the government could encourage more ethnic minority groups to take up the vaccine? 
I think I don't think there's going to be a one size fit all approach to it. Um, I think there has been some work that has actually happened in. I think it was Leicester I was reading. I'm actually uh, from Leicester. And there's community. I think if you look at kind of how a GP sits in a community and the importance it does have, it's the same way that I think libraries serve like a great, important kind of like communicator and like a as a holder of a community in there. And I think it is about using those people in the community as ambassadors for vaccines. It's about looking at, okay, this community, who do they actually trust? Who are they actually going to listen to? and taking like a localized communications approach to it, is it that they are going to listen to their GP? And so do the GPs need to set aside like a day and a week and just to call up their people who they know are going to be scared, who have already expressed these kind of concerns to them about the vaccine and just say, hey, this is the process. This is what it's going to be like. I've taken it. Do you trust me? Cool. Let's go do this. And so I think it's about really finding the people they already trust rather than trying to force this message from an institution which have let them down so many times. I think it's going to be a localised approach. Great. And that's a perfect answer. And I think a great example of where this is being done really well is in Minneapolis, where um, the the death around George George Floyd and, and the actual, the four police officers that are going on trial at the moment, the way the, and the city of Minneapolis is engaging with this is they're actually getting local people that are influencers within the city to actually post on social media to stop the fake news. So they're going to be posting stuff on social media about what's currently going on in the trial to stop the fake news and to encourage trust within that process. And I think the exact, you're, you're bang on, the exact same process could be take, taken with this getting local voices to talk about their honest experiences of this. But that, again, takes the, it would take the um, the government, it would need them to actually be humble enough to engage mm. in conversation with local um, local people to actually begin this. But again, it's a lot of the time we see on social media, it's just blanket statements that are going out. Everybody stay away from this. Everybody do that. And I really love the idea, Savino, of you saying, Let's have a more localized approach. So what, what about you, Nick? Um, what are your what are your thoughts on how the government could could um, improve folks taking up the vaccine? Yeah, I think honestly, I think that was a, a great answer. I, I totally agree. I I think that it's also really important, and you know, kind of following on to what you what you both were saying is that there needs to be an open dialogue for people to be able to kind of voice their concerns without being ridiculed and demonized. I think that. Um, Transparent information rather than kind of misinformation from everywhere is key. I think there needs to be kind of one set of, I know we were saying about uh, localization, but there also does need to be, um, I'd say, kind of one set of information that people can just go to rather than um, kind of getting information from everywhere and anywhere. Um, I think also that if you were to ask someone to do something big like taking the vaccine, you know, a weakened version of 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 the uh, of corona, uh, that um, you need to explain to them why and kind of be a bit sympathetic in the sense that, you know, what, why is this why is this going to be beneficial? Explain why this will make things safer for your family, you know, being able to get back to normality quicker. Um, but I, And I also think another point is that the government needs to acknowledge that people do not have the same internet proficiency. Um, I think, you know, Gen Z, we're, we're experts at finding information on the internet. However, um, you know, others may not be as proficient on the internet. I mean, for example, um, my mum didn't even know that on YouTube there was a search button. So, you know, if she watches a, a recommended, if she watches a video um, on, with a certain set of information, then she's only going to be recommended other videos with the same information, which, you know, you'll c- consistently get the same perspective. Um, and I think there shouldn't just be an availability of information 
on the internet. It should also be distributed efficiently within within the communities. Um, and I think leading on to that, another really interesting point that again with my, my friend that I uh, that I mentioned earlier was that with this clear and transparent information, um, we need to uh, increase the languages that these reports and this information are distributed in because you know Google Translate isn't totally reliable. And he was saying that his friend, um, no, he was saying that his family, um, they'd be able to process the information better if it was in Somali, you know, the native tongue, because kind of the information, you know, the way the language you think in is, is it tends to be that, you know, it's the language that you, you process best. And I think that would be, that would be a, a really positive, uh, positive uh, move forward. I love that. I think that's such a great point. And I really found it interesting what you're saying your mum didn't know there was a search button. And that's so, internet proficiency is so important because if we're saying, okay, we're going to decipher this information and, and as Savina was saying, we're going to get people in your um, in your local town to, to, to explain this to you. Um, if people haven't got access to that, we can we can do that till we're blue in the face and no, one gonna, no one's going to get access to it. So it's really making sure that, that people are getting access to the information where they see best. That's I think that's been a, a great topic. And we're going to move on to our second topic for the day. And I know Savina's excited about this one. Um, NFTs, aka non-fungible tokens, are digital assets that represent a wide range of unique, tangible and intangible items, from collectible sports cars to digital trainers. Recently, we've seen Jack, who is the founder of Twitter, sell his first ever tweet for around $2.5 million as an NFT. And we're seeing creators from all fields beginning to sell their work via blockchain as NFTs. Personally, I'm very excited about this. I saw today that Banksy sold um, one of his, we didn't actually personally sell, somebody sold one of his um, um, artworks as an NFT for around $400,000. And I think it's great because it puts the power back into creators' hands. Savina, coming to you first as our resident expert, <laughs> um, what are your thoughts on NFTs and how Gen Z creators could use the blockchain and the NFTs in particular? Um, yeah, this is a topic that has kind of been on the peripheral of my radar for a while. It's kind of blown up recently. Um, so to start off with, I agree with you that it, it has the potential to possibly, you know, galvanize the art industry in a new way and actually kind of give ownership and uh, like monetize art in new ways. But I do have to say I'm not a big fan of blockchain in its current forms and <laughs> NFTs is really something that really I don't agree with for a few reasons. Um, the, first, the first reason and the main reason is just the colossal, like, emissions output that uh, kind of cryptocurrency based things have like Bitcoin has the equivalent to something like the energy that Argentina uses in a year wow. like Ethereum I think is the name that crypto art is normally run off and traded on sorry um, that has the equivalent of like an annual energy consumption of I think Ecuador Um and then you're talking about there was an artist who also wanted to get into NFTs. He was, um, I think he was based somewhere in Europe. He was really interested. He was a climate activist and had always uh, dedicated his kind of work in the recent years to reducing his energy consumption. He sold one, F one F NFT um, and essentially that was the same. It, it released the same amount of emissions as his entire studio does in the entire year. That was just one, and he sold 10. 
And being a climate activist, he was like, oh, damn, that's not good. Um, and that's like, there's there's ways people have talked about it, like, oh, we can, you know, because essentially like cryptocurrencies use mining, which is essentially like making your computer work to figure out um, a kind of puzzle. And that's how it says once a puzzle is kind of done, then you're rewarded with your like new coin. And the more people who are buying into that coins, the more complicated the um puzzle get so you need more computer power in order to solve that puzzle so that's why bitcoin is like increasing how much energy consumption is doing if and if, if this you know um, crypto art is going in the same direction you're going to get more and more kind of increased use of a- increased emissions basically and I, that's not good for the planet um and the the other thing that kind of i have a problem with crypto art is yes it's great at kind of democratizing or monetizing art but it's only for those already in the circles it's already those for you know who can access how to kind of use cryptocurrency and also there's like really I don't think there's any intellectual property protection on the things that are being sold there's no regulation in place and there's also you've seen things like art being sold without the artist's permissions and once that token is being made of that artist's work like of their metadata like that's it you can't make another one and you also if you don't own it you don't own it you're gonna have to buy it even if it's your own art i've seen like a twitter bot going around like making um nft to nfts of um artist's work without their permission and then it's being sold and now they don't own it like there's such weird copyright laws here man i don't get it and I just, um, I don't think it's a perfect system. And just because of the way it's currently set up in that, you know, you've got a few artists who are early adopters and they get rich from a system made to reward investors, not artists. I And just given the amount of emissions it produces, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I obviously love, obviously being an artist, I love ways of protecting my work and being able to share it with people and also you know maybe one day making money from it but this is not this is not a route that I would go down and I'm I'm scared for how popular it's going to get and the effects it's going to have on the world um but yeah that's that's such an interesting answer because I hadn't even considered the emissions literally Serena Serena I literally hadn't even considered it until you said it and then I sat there and thought crap yeah of course, that's exactly how it's all built. It's such an interesting answer, and especially the, the annual emission output of Ecuador. Like, that's wild, and I think it's really interesting the points that you made. Nick, what about you, just before we finish off, what do you think about NFTs? I mean, wow, that's, uh, yeah, like you said, a different perspective. That um, <laughs> As someone that didn't know much about NFT previously, that's, yeah, completely kind of changed my outlook on it. But um, I'd say, yeah, my original thought was that there was that it was kind of like only rich people um, getting involved with NFTs. So I, I know I've read about, for example, Logan Paul selling five million dollars worth of NFTs. That obviously, for someone that hadn't hadn't um, known about it before, it was it, you know that's that's crazy money um, it's on on something that is not a physical asset. Um, I'd say that as a whole, I'm I'm not entirely sure if if people are totally aware of what encapsulates nfts what it what it is all about even if there is kind of this increasing media coverage on it um in particular due to things occurring such as this you know the first tweet being sold for 2.5 million dollars it's there's there's a lot of money in in nfts and um and in blockchain but um 
yeah, it's really interesting to see how people are suddenly kind of getting on this hype train um, and that they're interested in buying these digital assets of things such as, you know, digital cats or, you know, digital punks. And as you said, these are the the kind of early, early adopter stage. Um, again, um, it, yeah, it's interesting how people want to own this this sense of kind of owning something, you know, not not a physical asset. Um, I feel like, you know, COVID has, has really been the catalyst of of this idea of of um, not owning a kind of a a, a physical a physical item, a, ta- a tangible a tangible product. Um, but I do like the idea that there's this direct connectivity between the customer and the person selling. It's kind of a bit of a cleaner business process. Um, even if there are some obvious, um, you know, negatives, if, as you mentioned, um, but I think with 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 business, the most important part of business is time. And if you can save time and cut out the middleman, um, you know, the agent, uh, then you can. It, yeah, if you can save time, you can save money, and if you can save money, you can save time. So um, I think that it's an interesting kind of topic. I don't know if I'll dabble in it yet, but um, especially after what what's just mentioned. But um, it is definitely something to look out for, and it, it'll be really interesting to see kind of how it progresses and develops um, as the year goes on. Yeah, a great. And, and just as we're finishing up, from, from, from my point of view, I was I've been so excited about NFTs from a perspective of the the way I could see it democratizing um, um, the creator economy. But hearing what Savino was saying about the regards to the emissions and and the not being able to control your copyright and so on and so on, it's, it's, it's things I hadn't considered. That's why I'm so thankful for conversations like this. But I do think if we can find a balance and somehow get it right and to reduce emissions and whatever it may be, I think there could be potentially a way going forward. But when from my side, I always come from a how, how brands could use this. And I think there's an amazing way that brands could connect with Gen Z and potentially get Gen Z artists to create content and make sure that content is properly copyrighted and, and so on and so on and then brands could partner with with gen z to actually sell that content whether it be music or artwork or whatever it may be but obviously there are the challenges that come with that that savina mentioned and it would really be for brands to do their research properly before they dive into this space but thank you again to savina and nick for, for taking the time out to chat with me today. Um, we went a little bit over 20 minutes, like like we normally agreed, but um, it's been a great conversation. I hope it has been able to add value to what you guys are doing. Thank you for listening to the third episode of Imagine This. Um, our mission at Imagine is to help Gen Z to shape their future. And we know the best way for them to do that is with brands, because brands shape countries and culture like politicians only wish they could. So we enable agencies and brands to crowdsource feedback, ideas, or insights from our community of Gen Z consultants. So if you'd love to hear from amazing folks like Nick and Savina and the phenomenal folks we have in our community, please feel free to reach out. Also, please feel free to like, subscribe, and share this podcast. Finally, if you have any questions you would love to ask to our Gen Z community, drop me a DM, reach out via um, via our website, whatever it may be. Thank you again for tuning in and we will speak to you soon.